Good to see you all here this morning. Uh, We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22 in a few minutes. If you want to go ahead and turn there, feel free to do that. Um, If you didn't bring a a Bible but you want to follow along, um, we put the Bibles underneath the seats. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our free gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word, so be sure you take that home with you. Um, We're going to get started in just a minute. A couple of quick reminders, though. Um, First of all, this afternoon at 4 o'clock is our all-members meeting And so you've heard me announce that already. If you've been here the last couple of Sundays, we really want um, everybody to show up. Um, Even those of you who aren't members of the church, if if you call Solid Rock your home, we invite you. Come be a part of that uh, time together. We're going to share together about all the things that God is doing in our lives individually before we talk about um, the the behind-the-scenes stuff going on at the church. And so... Um, If God's put something on your heart or God's been working in your life and you just want to share that with the rest of the church this afternoon at 4 o'clock, that's where we're going to start. And so come prepared to do that. You can go home today and think about uh, what God has put on your heart to share. If you want to do that, no obligation, but then you could share it with the church uh, to encourage one another this afternoon at 4 o'clock. So I want to remind you about that. And then, of course, we'll go through all the nuts and bolts of new buildings and all those kinds of things as well. So 4 o'clock this afternoon in this room, I hope you all will make it. Um, We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22. We are continuing in our sermon series entitled Desires of the Heart. This is a sermon series where we are going through the Bible together, um, looking at these things that capture our affection and become more to us than God himself. And along the way, what what we've been working with is this definition of an idol is that anything in our lives, anything, any person, thing, place, idea, or ambition... That, that takes the place of ultimate uh, among the desires of our heart has become an idol. And what we've recognized is that more often t- than not, our idols are actually good things. Good things that God has given to us or placed in our life, things to, to show us his goodness and to reflect his glory. When these good things become ultimate things, they become idols. And so we've looked at dreams last week and how these, these good, God-given dreams can become an idol when they become more important to us than even God himself. And today we're going to be looking at relationships, okay? Now this one's going to be tricky for a couple of reasons. First reason is we're all in relationships of some sort, right? Uh, you are the child of a parent. Many of you are parents of children. You have friends. Some of you are married. Some of you are dating. Every person in this room is in a relationship. And so to make it more complicated, um, relationships, when we look at the priorities that God gives us in life, relationships are right at the top, right? More important than work, more important than my career, more important than even my education or my hobbies or my possessions. Relationships are right at the top. And so to make it more complicated, some of the most important things to us, if we're not careful, but can become more important to us than God and in that moment become our idols. And the reality is, the chances are that every person in this room at one time or another, at one season of life or another, has turned a relationship into an idol. Whether it was in you know, elementary school, right? You really wanted this person to like you, right? And it became everything to you. You couldn't be happy or secure unless this person liked you. In that moment, that person's opinion of you became an idol, whether it was a dating relationship, maybe in marriage, children. Most every parent has to go through that struggle, right, of loving your children well, but not too much. And so for all of us in the room today, I think in some level, this has been part of our journey. And so we're going to get started 
Um, actually, I'm going to read a, a verse from Luke chapter 14 at one of the most controversial things that Jesus ever said. In Luke 14, um, he's gathered a crowd of people around him. In verse uh, 25, we read that now great crowds had accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, if you've ever heard that or read that before, surely you had to step back and ask the question, what are you saying, Jesus? You want me to be mean to people? I thought I was supposed to love people, especially like my mother and father and my children and my friends. I thought I was supposed to love my neighbor. What are you saying here, Jesus, that I should hate these most important people to me? Well, to answer this question, we're going to go to the Old Testament. The book of Genesis, chapter 22. This is a story of Abraham and his son, Isaac. If you've been in church, like grown up in church or been around church for several years, there's a good chance you're familiar with the story we're going to look at today. So let me just give you some background. In chapter 12 of Genesis, God comes to a man named Abraham. Okay, He's got a wife, Sarah. They don't have any kids. He makes this promise to Abraham. Now, in the moment, God... Abraham didn't realize that the promise God was making to him was going to impact so many lives, right? He just knew, God's speaking to me, God's making a promise to me, and I want to believe him. But what we've come to find out is that the promise God makes to Abraham in chapter 12 is actually the theme of the whole Bible. And so what God promises to Abraham is, first of all, Abraham, I'm going to bless you with children. I know your wife Sarah has not been able to uh, conceive and have children, but I'm going to bless you with children. And you're going to have this massive family. And from your descendants is going to come this great nation. But I'm not stopping there. Through this great nation, through your descendants, Abraham, I'm going to bless all other nations on earth. Now what God was saying to Abraham ahead of time was essentially he was promising the gospel. That through Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, God would bless all nations, all ethnicities, all colors of people, all languages. And you and I sit here today as Christians, right, because God made this promise to Abraham. Now from there, uh, Abraham leaves his father's home, his, his, his familiarity with his surroundings, and he travels and follows God through the wilderness. And, and, uh, and, and eventually, um, he actually, his wife conceives uh, they're very late in age. It's a miraculous thing. And we're going to pick the story up in chapter 22. God's going to come back to Abraham, and he's going to ask something of Abraham. We're going to start in verse 1. Chapter 22 of Genesis, verse 1. So after these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here Am I? Now we're going to talk about in just a moment the actual story that's going to follow. But before we even start looking at the narrative of chapter 22, we know the theme of what's going to happen is that God is testing Abraham. God comes to Abraham to what? To test him. Okay? And he says to Abraham, Abraham. And how does Abraham respond? He says, Here I am. Now that is a, a, a beautiful expression of. I'm available, God. What do you want to say to me? What would you require of me? That's the response that Abraham gives back to God. 
Now, the idea of being tested by God is not isolated to just chapter 22 of Genesis. Matter of fact, it's a reoccurring theme in the Bible. You'll find over 270 references in the Bible to either God putting his people to the test or people testing God, okay? And so if we look forward in our Bible, like to different examples, Zechariah, for example, um, God says that he's going to test his people. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 13 for a second to get a better idea of what God is thinking when he tests. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 2, we read this, that on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. So God is talking to Zechariah, and he's saying about the people of God, listen, I'm about to clean house here, and I'm going to remove from my people all of their idols. They're going to forget the names of all of their idols. I'm going to clean house here, and all the, the prophets of uncleanness, I'm going I'm I'm to clean house here, okay? But look at what we read next. Verse, if you jump down to verse 9, here's how God is going to do this. I will put this third into the fire. So a little background. God's speaking about the whole nation of Israel through Zechariah. And what he says is that two-thirds of the nation are going to continue walking in rebellion. But one-third of the nation is actually going to turn back to him. So now what we're reading in verse 9 is that the one-third that turns back to God, he's going to put them in the fire. Now that sounds strange, doesn't it? Why don't you put the two-thirds who are walking in rebellion in the fire, and why don't you let us live happily ever after? But God loves us too much, doesn't he, to leave us where we are? God loves us too much to leave us in our rebellion and our idolatry, and even though one-third are turning back to God, their hearts aren't quite ready yet. Look at what we read next. I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. So there's that idea of being tested again. We get a better picture, don't we? When God tests us, it's about refining us. Like you would take silver that's got impurities in it or gold and you would heat it up to the hottest temperature. And what happens? The impurities come to the surface and they burn away. And when you're done, what are you left with? Pure gold. And so when God tests his people, it's about refining our heart motives. And what God is saying to the nation of Israel, listen, I'm going to cleanse you from all your idols. And those of you who turn back to me who are willing to do this, here's how I'm going to refine you like gold. I'm going to test you. And look at the end result. Verse, this is the end of verse 9. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Now, right, so testing isn't always the easiest thing in our lives. But what God is saying is that when God tests his people, it's for our good. So when we talk about idols in our hearts, things that God is calling us to let go of, ultimately it's for our good that God is doing this. He's refining our motives, refining our hearts. And so along the way, if we discover that there are things in our heart that, 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 that we love just too much, 
things that mean more to us than God, things that we trust in more than we trust in God. What God is saying is like, like listen to me, trust me here, let go of that thing. It's actually to your good to let go of that thing. And so this is what God's about to do in Abraham's life. He's about to test him. He's about to refine something in Abraham's heart. Verse 2, we find out quickly what that is. Here's how God responds. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. Now, here's what's being put to the test. Abraham's love for his son. Now, let's ask this question. Is it wrong for a man to love his son? No. God's not calling Abraham to quit loving his son, is he? But what is he putting to the test? His love for his son, his only son. And in this moment, Abraham has to make a decision, doesn't he? Now, I have a hard time as a dad, like fully getting there to where Abraham's at. But I can anticipate or imagine some of the struggles I would be having if I'm Abraham. So let's just walk through a few of them. First of all, Isaac uh, is the heir of the promise God made to Abraham in chapter 12. So there's, there's a struggle there, isn't there? Wait a second, God, you promised me this son, and you're going right, to bless all the nations through him, but now you're asking me to sacrifice him. Right? I would struggle with that. God, do you want me to believe your promise or obey your command here? I'm not sure. I'm confused because they seem to be in contrast with one another. But, but even more significant than that, Isaac is Abraham's firstborn son. Now, not, not so much in our culture and day and time, but in this day and time, that was huge. Even beyond uh, those who worship the one true God, those who worship pagans, even placed a lot of significance on the firstborn son. And I'll just give you some examples. So like for a family um, that walked in um, obedience to their deity, to their object of worship, a family that prospered and did well, they believed that the blessings of that family were passed down through the firstborn son. So if the family did well, then the firstborn son would do well. They also believed, though, if a family walked in division and rebellion and selfishness, that the curse of the family or the curse of the father would be passed down to the firstborn son. Even the pagans believed this. And often in the pagan religions, the firstborn son would have to pay for the sins of the family. And so this is a big moment here where God's saying to Abraham, take your son, your only son, your firstborn son, and place him on the altar. But let's just cut through all that for a minute. First and foremost, Abraham's a daddy and Isaac's his son. Right From the moment he first laid eyes on this little baby boy, Right? This little baby boy captured his heart. He fell in love with him. He and Sarah had been longing for years to have a child. And now they've got one, Isaac. And God is asking him to do something unthinkable, something that doesn't make sense, something that has to be cutting against the grain of everything else that's going on in Abraham's heart at this moment. And so God puts Abraham to the test by telling him to take his son, his only son whom he loves, and sacrifice him. Now, we don't know um, for sure about Abraham's love for his son because the word used here could be used for anything from I love chocolate to I love God. 
and anything in between, right? I love my neighbor. I love my wife. I love my children. I love, I love chocolate. I love the way this person makes me laugh. I love, this, this word could have meant a lot of things. All we know is that Abraham's affection for his son is being put to the test. Now, the bottom line question for Abraham in this moment, there's no question he loved his son. There's no question that he trusted God. Right? But here's the question that God's asking Abraham. In this moment, do you trust me more than you love your son? That is the test. And so what Abraham does is he begins to pack up and get ready to go to the mountain that God's going to show him. Right? He packs up some firewood for the burnt offering. He gets his son Isaac up out of bed. Son, go brush your teeth, get dressed. Where are we going? We're going, we're going to worship. Got the firewood ready. He straps it on Isaac's back, kind of backpack style, right? They've got the, the knife for the sacrifice. They've got the fire. A, uh, Abraham grabs a couple of his servants, and they head out together. We'll pick this back up in verse 5. They get to a certain point, and so in verse 5, Abraham says to the young men, the two extra people who are traveling with him, he says, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And we'll read just a few more verses in a second. But first of all, two things we want to note. So Abraham has got to that place where he realizes that's where God wants me to go. I can see it. And so he says to the two young men, you guys stay put. Hold the, hold the donkey. Isaac and I are going over there to do what? Worship. This is about worship for Abraham. We're going over to worship. And we're coming back to you. Now, that sounds pretty confident, doesn't it? Like if we keep reading verse 6, And Abraham, he took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went, both of them, together. I mean, they're headed out to do this, right? They're headed out to do to do something that God's called him to do, to put his son on the altar and sacrifice him. And at the same time, he's saying, oh, by the way, we're coming back. And, and what is Abraham saying about this whole experience? This is an act of worship for me. Now, that really uh, kind of competes with our understanding of what worship is, doesn't it? There's nothing about music in here, about songs that they're singing. Like for Abraham, this is an act of worship, simply trusting God and obeying God in this moment. Now, remember at the beginning, God says to Abraham, Abraham, and what does Abraham say back to God? Here I am. I'm available. Speak to me. What would you ask of me? Now, look at what happens next. Verse 7, Isaac says to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Or, here I am, my son. So now, this, this, this idea that God has come to Abraham and said, Abraham, Abraham said, here I am, God. Now, just in this moment, Isaac is saying, hey, Dad. And Abraham's saying what to his son? Yes, son, I'm here. What would you ask of me? And we can begin to kind of feel the tension now between Abraham's allegiance to God and his allegiance and his love for his son. And so uh, Isaac asks, behold, I see the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. 
So Isaac's catching on now, isn't he? He's probably done this before with dad. He knows, right? I see the firewood. I've got that. Dad, I see you've got the knife and the, and the fire. But last time we did this, didn't we take a lamb with us? Where's the, where's, the, where's the lamb at? And I love Abraham's response. What was his response? God will provide. Now, did this, does this make sense to Abraham? I don't think so. I think there's this tension between Abraham's allegiance to his son, his allegiance to God. There's a tension between God's promise and God's command. He's feeling all of it. And what's his answer? God will provide. God will work this out. Right? Have you ever been in that place where right, God's calling you to do something that doesn't make sense? Maybe not quite so dramatic as this. Right? Quit your job and start a new career path. Right? Walk across the room and start a conversation with somebody. And, and God's calling you to do something maybe that doesn't make sense. And in that moment, your response is not to make sense of it. It's to say what? I, tr- I trust God will provide what is needed for, for what, right, what he's calling me to do. And so Isaac looks up at dad and says, dad, where is the sheep at? And what does Abraham say? He doesn't say, hey, Isaac, God's going to get us out of this. Don't worry about it. What does he say? God will provide. Now, we don't know fully everything that's going on in Abraham's heart and mind, but we're about to see that Abraham fully intended to obey God in this moment. And I feel like if I'm in Abraham's shoes, this was probably kind of a step-by-step thing for Abraham, right? God's called me to go. So the first thing we got to do is we got to get out of bed, get dressed, and we got to go. Maybe I didn't hear God clearly, and he's going to correct that along the way. Then they get to a certain point in the journey where Abraham realizes, you know what? Um, Guys, you stay here. You keep the donkey. Isaac and I are going to keep walking. And now we're going to get to the place where they've made it to the altar, and it's time to sacrifice his son. And we don't fully know everything going on in Abraham's heart and mind, but here's what we do know. When you go to the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the author of Hebrews lets us in on what's going on in Abraham's heart. Matter of fact, the author of Hebrews says that in this moment, what Abraham's trusting in is not that God will put a a, a ram in the thicket there for him. What he's trusting in is that God is able to resurrect from the dead. That's what Abraham's thinking in this moment. I'm going to go through with this, right? Because God's commanded this of me. It doesn't make sense. It seems to go against his promise, so it doesn't make sense to me. But here's the thing. I trust God. I believe God can even resurrect from the dead. And so in verse 9, we read this, that when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son And laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He's going to go through with this. Verse 10. And and Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said what? Here I am. Right? Right? In that moment, in that tension between allegiance to his son, allegiance to God, God speaks in verse 11, and what does Abraham say? I'm listening. I can almost hear like the knife dropping and hitting the rocks on the ground. Just, right, I'm stopped. I'm listening. Here I am. What would you ask of me, God? God responds, do not, verse 12, lay your hand on the boy or do anything 
to him. Why not? I thought this is what you asked of me. But you keep in mind, what did verse 1 tell us about this story? This whole story is about testing Abraham's heart, right? And so he responds to him in verse 12. He says, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. Why? For now I know. Now I know that you fear God. How does God know that? Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so what Abraham's test was this. God was asking Abraham, will you trust me more than you love your son? God was not telling Abraham, stop loving your son. Right? God was not calling Abraham to be a bad father. He was not telling Abraham, it's sinful for you to love your son. All God was doing was putting Abraham's trust to the test. Do you trust me more than you love him? Now, Isaac didn't die on the altar that day, but something did die. What was it? Abraham's idol. Think about it. Abraham's idol. Now, here's what I want to say to you today. You cannot love the people in your life well unless you love God more. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of explain to you how that works. It sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? Right? If, if I make my wife the ultimate object of my love, I'll end up in the end loving her less. However, if I right, make God my ultimate affection, my ultimate ambition, I want to worship him, I want to love him more than anything else here on earth, guess what happens? He calls me into obedience. And what does he command me to do? To love my wife sacrificially. Now, if I go straight for my wife and I just want to love her with everything I am, first of all, I'm going to heap up a, a bunch of expectations on her that she can't bear. I'm going to look for her to, be, to make me happy. I'm going to look for her to make me secure. I'm going to look for her to give me hope when I'm hopeless. And guess what? She can't deliver on those things. Right? She can't. But so, so my love for my wife is really going to be a selfish thing. I'm loving her to get something back. Selfishly. But if I will make God my primary object of affection, guess what? He will call me to love her sacrificially. And it's actually to her good for me to love God more. You see how that works? The same thing is true for my boys. God isn't telling you dads, don't love your sons. He's saying, you want to love your sons well? Love me first. Right? It puts everything in perspective. Right? It puts me at the top, and then I'm going to call you dads to love your sons with gentleness and sacrifice. Show them what honor looks like. Dads, I'm telling you, you will crush your sons. You will crush your children. You will crush your little girls if you make them your idols. They can't give to you what you want from them. They can't. They weren't created to do that. They weren't created to satisfy you, parents. They weren't. God and God alone can satisfy. And when he is your everything, he gives you a satisfaction that allows you to love the people in your life well. Listen, if you're not satisfied and you're going to a person to get that satisfaction, they will let you down every time. And here's what's tricky. In the priorities of life, right? My wife's number one. Ahead of my boys, right? My boys are number two. Ahead of you, right? And then you're number three. Ahead of myself. And so there's the, right? You're right at the top of things I'm supposed to love. 
Right? But God says what? Have no other gods before me. Even those good things in your life I've put in your life, they make lousy gods. Don't put them before me. Put me first. Seek my kingdom first. And everything else will fall in place. See, when God challenges us and tests us, it is always for our good and the good of the people around us. Always. God isn't testing you to be mean to you. He tested the one-third of the people who turned back to him. It's a loving thing for God to test us, isn't it? And what happens when he tests us is all of our impure motives come to the surface and he burns them away like impurities and like chaff and all that's left is what is pure. Parents, probably some even in this room, one of the most powerful things you can do for your children, right, is to let go of those idols. How do you know when you're idolizing a relationship? How do you know when things are getting out of proportion? I want to go back to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14 and see if it makes more sense to us now. Can we do that? So Jesus has gathered a crowd of people around him, Luke 14. We'll start in verse 26. And he makes this statement. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus wasn't calling us to be mean to people. If you read down to verse 33, we'll get the point of what he's saying. Look at what he says in verse 33. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is talking about where your ultimate allegiance lies. In this moment, was Abraham, was he more allegiant to his son or to God? That's what was being put to the test. And what Jesus is saying to us, parents, spouses, teenagers who are dating, your ultimate allegiance has to be to Jesus first. Or else, you'll trample the people around you you're supposed to be loving, or you'll let them trample you. Everything gets out of whack when God is not your ultimate affection. Everything. Now, as we're talking through this, there's a good chance you've thought back about a season in your life where potentially a relationship had become an idol. Let me just give you some questions to, to get us thinking about our most important relationships. First of all, I'd ask this. Is there any relationship in your life that you are uncontrollably fearful of losing? Okay, I'm not asking, are there people in your life that you don't want to lose? If you love people, you don't want to lose them. That's good. Not wanting to lose people is a, a, a reflection of your love. That's good. I'm asking, are there any people in your life that you're uncontrollably fearful of losing? If so, potentially, there could be an idol there. Is there a relationship in your life that seems to make you irrationally angry? Not just normal, hey, that frustrated me when you did such and such, but like irrationally angry. You know what I'm talking about? Zero to 60. And you're like, I don't know why I'm so mad right now, but I'm furious. It could be potentially 
that that person or their opinion of you has become an idol? Is there a relationship in your life that makes you feel insecure? Where is our security supposed to be rooted in? God and what he thinks of us. And if there's a relationship in your life that causes you to be insecure, potentially you've made that person's opinion of you, right, how they feel about you more important than what God thinks of you or feels about you. And what has happened is that person potentially has become an idol. Is there a relationship in your life that causes you to question your identity? Remember, remember junior high, right, when you would kind of conform to a certain image to be accepted by a group of people? Any, anybody besides me? Those some goofy years, wasn't it? I'm so glad we don't have, like, Facebook footage, you know, of, of what, what happened in junior high, right? Because we did goofy stuff, didn't we? With our hair, with our clothes. I mean, I went from, like, cowboy to skater, like, in about two weeks because I wanted to be accepted by a group of friends and started tight rolling my pants and put on my skater shoes and started growing my bangs long, you know, and it lasted about six weeks. I look back and I go, why did I do that? Because I had idolized the opinions of a certain group of people and I wanted to fit in. Now, here's the, here's the truth. That doesn't stop with junior high, does it? We've got grown-up versions of that. And we see people on Facebook doing certain things. I want that kind of family. I want that kind of lifestyle. And so you, you work hard to try to attain it. And easily those things can become idols. Especially when we get into dating and marriage, right? We can let our world revolve around how this person's treating me, whether or not this person likes me or wants me, and it would devastate me to think about this person ever leaving me or walking out of my life. It would crush me. I would be in despair if this person didn't like me, and what ends up happening is what? I end up compromising, right, just to make sure I've got your affection. It happens to, to a lot of young ladies in high school, junior high even, just compromising your standards, your morals, because you just want to have his affection. Listen, he may be good looking, he may be a great football player, super cool, lots of friends. He is a lousy idol. Amen? He's a lousy idol. Right? That person may even be a, something good God wants for you, but that person will make a lousy idol when you make them your everything and you, you seek to find your security and your, and, and your sense of identity in that person. Is there a relationship in your life that causes you to feel unworthy or unloved by God, if another human being can cause you to question your worthiness or the, the, the amount that God loves you, potentially that person's opinion of you means more to you than what God's opinion of you is, and potentially there's an idol. Now, these, are, these questions are in your, in your uh, sermon notes. Um, there, there are other questions we could add to this, right? But the point is what? God wants to refine us like gold, because he loves us, and he wants to bring to the surface any idols, any impurities in our hearts, any desires that are aimed at anything other than him. And if you will aim your desires at God, you will fix your eyes on God, right? Everything else will fall into its proportionate order in your life, whether it's a person, a dream, a career, a hobby. All the good things that God has blessed you with, right, will become simply the good things and not the ultimate things that you're seeking happiness in. I want to I land here today, okay? Um, I want to pray for us, for you, for myself. Um, it's not easy to, to preach through 
a sermon series on idols because I'm thinking about this all week long. And God won't let me just think about you. I have to think about me too. Um, and I have to allow God to refine my heart as well. So I'm, I'm in this boat with you. My prayer is going to be, God, bring to the surface any relationships in my life that have become more important to me than you. Now, keep this in mind. God didn't call Abraham to quit loving his son, did he? I would say this. Abraham walked down this mountain loving his son better. This is actually going to be to the good of everybody in your life. If you and I would allow God to refine us this morning, right? Refining doesn't mean you walk away from people. It means that you walk towards God and let those people become rightfully into their place of your priorities and affections. So I'm going to pray God would do that this morning, okay? I invite you to pray that with me. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, um, and you may not even know it, so here's how you know. If you have not come to that place in your life where you've said, you know what, I trust in you, Jesus, and you alone. Not what people can do for me or what I can do for myself, but I trust in what you and you alone can do for me. Okay, that's the moment you become a Christian. And if you haven't, if you haven't done that, you haven't made that decision, I'm going to pray you'd make that decision today. I'm going to pray that you today would take that step of faith and pray, Lord Jesus, I, I want to make you more important than anything else in this world. I'm going to trust in you and you alone for my salvation, for my forgiveness of sins, for my eternal life. Like I'm putting everything in one basket and it's you. Um, our prayer partners are here today. I'm going to ask the prayer partners to be at the front and the back. And if that's you, I'm just going to encourage you when we stand to sing um, to make your way out of your seats and go grab one of our prayer partners and let them pray for you. If you have questions about becoming a Christian, how to do that, they would be honored to talk with you, answer your questions, and to pray with you. And so I'm going to invite our worship team, if you guys are ready, to come back up. And I'm going to ask our prayer teams to go ahead and make your way to your positions. And I'm going to pray for us now and, and just ask God uh, to work in our hearts, and then we're going to respond. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we, we thank you this morning that you love us enough um, to speak hard things into our lives. Father, we, we thank you that you love us enough that you would reveal the imperfections of our, our motives and our desires. And God, this morning we confess we are idolaters. God, each one of us this morning, and maybe in different ways, but each one of us, God, this morning, God, is prone to turning away from you and towards the things here on earth. We're prone to find our, 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 our security and our joy in the things here on earth. So today we want to ask God that you would refine us. God, that sounds like such a, a painful thing. But we know, God, just like you spoke to Zechariah, that it is for our good that you would refine our motives. You would capture our affections. You would reorient our worship off of stuff here on earth and, and towards you. God, would you do that this morning? Would you work in us and work on us and... God, would you bring healing where there's brokenness? God, would you bring comfort where there's despair? God, would you bring hope to where there's hopelessness? Would you satisfy our every need this morning? We pray in Jesus' powerful name.